So here we are at the end of the second full day. And how are you doing? Is it getting more calm? Is it kind of still in and out, more, a little bit more settling? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, kind of, you can congratulate yourself that you made it through the second day. And for most of you, it will get easier starting tomorrow. No promises. Um, but we call this often like the first couple of days the swamps. So it's often like this wading through um, what we also call the hindrances. So a lot of like sleepiness and restlessness and might often feel like we're just flip-flopping back and forth, right? So we're like completely sleepy, sleepy, we can't really stay awake. And then like 10 minutes later, we're so restless, we can barely stay here. Um, we might doubt why we're even here. Uh, we might be completely lost in fantasies and wonderful things and then we get very aversive about like how somebody stands in line in the hall or puts their food on the table on the plate and right so like the mind is very um often very caught in this um yeah just really arriving for me often like when i come on retreat it feels like it's like um trying to stop a freight train that is in full speed Right? And it just takes a kind of adjustment, um, and I'm losing my headset here doing this, <laughs> um, to calming and to arriving. And for those of you who have done this many times, you're aware of that, so you just bear it with patience, more or less. But for those of you who are new, you might be wondering if this is really the right, was the right choice if you're really in the right place, if that is worth um, spending like 10 days of your precious busy life doing this. So if any of this just went through your head over these last two days, maybe more than once, you're probably in really good company. And um, so I would actually like to just have a short show of hands. And so even those for those of you who've heard this many times, so how many of you over these maybe last two days or maybe just last hour or two hours had um, fantasies, pleasant fantasies, wishing for something nice, pleasant, maybe just the next meal? Yes. Just in case you think that's just you, just I invite you to look around. <laughs> Um, how many of you had the opposite? So aversion, resistance against something, experience right now, this moment, or just thinking having to do like more of this, more days? Yes, thank you. Um, how many of you, we've talked about this even in the hall, have had at least some moments of what we call sloth and torpor, sleepiness, lethargy? Oh yeah, oh yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, and how many of you had some moments of um, restlessness or worry? Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, right, here. <laughs> and um, then the last one of this classic list is doubt. So how many of you had the thought, either wondering like if this is really the right method for you, or if this really working, I mean, like, who cares if this has been around for 2,600 years, right? Maybe it's still a fad, right? And it will just disappear. 
Um, or you wondered whether you're able to do this, because everybody looks so relaxed and peaceful. Yes, can I show of hands? Yes, thank you. Thank you, yeah. So um, we like to bring this topic up like in the first couple of days because we forget that these are all just weather patterns that are moving through that we forget that this is not the mind and this is not who we are. But this is just states that arise out of conditions, right? And they're just here. And our job is just to recognize them, to name them, and to let them be. And to trust that they will actually pass away by itself. And you've probably noticed that, right? So one moment you're completely tired, you can barely sit up, and then five minutes later, you're, you're just fine. And you wonder, like, where did the sleepiness go? Or the other way around? Or any of these um, states, they just arise, they're here for a while, and then they leave. The interesting thing or where we get caught is we get caught in the content. Have you noticed that? That your thoughts are always matching the states that you're in? And they're very convincing, Right? So they might say like, oh yeah, you didn't sleep well, go take a nap, right? Or you're so restless, maybe I need to go for a walk, I go for a hike. So there are always like explanations or the mind offers, um, usually like convincing explanations why we're in that state right now. And we are often then put to the place where we then change what we're doing instead of just being aware and noticing and holding it, and seeing what happens actually if we don't do anything. So our job really is to just to recognize it, to name it, and to know how it feels like when it's here, right? Because restlessness always feels like restlessness, and it doesn't matter what I'm restless about. Desire feels like desire, it doesn't matter what I desire, it has a particular flavor. Resisting feels always like I don't want this, like a pulling back or a tension, a tensing of muscles or like tensing of the mind. So when we can see this, right, we can recognize it when it's there and then it's also actually really helpful to notice when it's not there, right? So notice the moment when it's absent. So to say like, oh, this is what restlessness feels like and then maybe 10 minutes later or an hour later you go like, oh, now the restlessness is gone and this is what the absence of restlessness feels like. Right? And this is really all we are asked to do at this point, to just to notice, bring awareness to it and not be so caught in it. <laughs> so what I would like to go more deeply into tonight other than the hindrances, so that was my hindrance talk, five minutes, um, is um, the body. The body and ease in the body and pain in the body and struggles with the body. So, and as the first thing, so I want to actually explore a couple of areas with you. And the first thing I would like you to do is to explore something that bodies really like, but that is something that we traditionally don't do in Buddhism, but it still has been found to be very helpful, which is um, what we call supportive touch. 
So we're thinking about, so what can, how can we support ourselves to get the mind more settled, to calm the heart and the mind and the body? Touch is actually very helpful for that. And for those of you who are a little bit around in the secular mindfulness world or self-compassion world, you're probably aware of this. And Or if you just have been, I see some people already putting their hand on their heart. <laughs> and um, we often actually teach that when we teach metta, right? Uh, just as an invitation. And I just want to explore that a little bit more with you and give you a little bit more background information on this. So we are all, as human beings, we're hardwired for supportive touch. Right? That's just something we are born with. Right? So as infants, we are not able to survive if we are not touched enough, appropriately and supportively, lovingly. Like our development doesn't happen normally if we don't get that in a sufficient way. And there's a lot of research showing that um, just like a hand on the shoulder of a friend or holding a partner's hand is very helpful to the person who is receiving and also to the person who is giving the touch. And interestingly enough, to my knowledge, nobody has still actually done to me, a very simple um, study, just noticing or just checking that what happens actually when we do this? We put a hand on the heart, or if we hold our own hand. Um, but just trying it tells me that there is something similar. So if we're exploring this, so and I would like to do that with you. So. Inviting you to, if you want to, you can close your eyes. If you feel self-conscious, close your eyes, then nobody can see you, right? So, <laughs> so allowing yourself, so we're just trying a couple of different things. And the idea really is that you let your body answer, right? So we're doing body practices here. We want to be more in our body and listen more to the body. So first one is, so put one hand on the chest, we say on the heart, but the heart actually is only in the vicinity. It's not actually directly here. And just notice what that feels like. To have a hand on your chest. And just noticing, so we're asking your body, do you like that? Does it feel good? Does it feel supportive? And then inviting you to put both hands on your chest. So again, just as an experiment. Some bodies really like that. And putting one hand on your belly and leaving the other on the chest. Noticing what that feels like. Then putting your hands in your lap, but holding one hand with the other hand. So this is a nice one. So when we teach that to veterans, they really like that because you can just sit there and nobody would notice that you're actually giving yourself self-compassion. 
actually one of my favorites too. And so you can just squeeze your own hand. So just basically the way you would like with a friend, just kind of transmitting the message of, I got you, I've got your back. And then now rub one forearm with your hand or just touch it, stroke it in whatever way feels nice. Again, just notice the response of your body. And what's very interesting is that um, quite recently, like, I don't know, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, they found fibers in the skin, they're called C fibers, and they think that these fibers are actually made to transmit just this supportive touch. And they just respond to soft, gentle stroking. They're not activated when we pinch or squeeze, which I think it's just fascinating. Like, how did we end up with that? Okay, so, and then obviously you can um, try many other forms to do that too. And a really nice one also is to, um, during your week here, if you're hurting in the body somewhere, it's really nice to put a hand on that body part, right? So we do that often, like when we have like sick kids or we're taking care of somebody, right? So like if your kid has a tummy ache, you sit next to them and put your hand on the tummy. And this is a lot, so really the approach that we want to learn to um, be with ourselves the way we would be with a sick child or we would be with a friend that is hurting. And it's often so hard to do that for ourselves. But really in the end, it's like we're always waiting for others to do this for us, right? But how about we're starting to offer that to ourselves? What would that be like? If we could learn to be with ourselves, with our pain, our struggles, and our suffering in a way that we are actually all longing for, right? We all wanted to have that parent who was always there, being a witness, making it good again. And they often weren't, right? But here we are as adults, and what are what can we do? And this is just a practice again to how to be with pain or with suffering in a more um, soft, more loving and more kind way. So, um, next thing that I would like to do with you is I would like to guide us through a about 10 minute meditation. And again, exploring some of these topics. So, um, as always, you um, see what works for you. You try it on for size, you play with that. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, then yeah, just don't mind. Don't um, just put it down. So, I'm inviting you. So, this meditation has three um, different steps to it. So inviting you to close your eyes if that feels okay. 
Getting comfortable or as comfortable as you can. And then feeling into a sense of safety. So noticing maybe you feel safe or quite safe here in this place. Maybe you could feel even more safe and maybe reflecting on what would help you to feel even more safe or calm in this moment. So sometimes that might um, mean you're opening your eyes and you become aware that we're all here with you. Sometimes that might mean that um, thinking about a safe place or a safer place than here. It could be like your bed at home or like a vacation place where you felt really safe and calm and peaceful. And if it is really challenging for you, you could also ask yourself, what would it feel like? Imagining feeling safe, what would that feel like? Again, we're not trying to make anything happen here. It's just a, an invitation, a gentle exploring. Like a place that maybe feels like home. It can also be totally an imagined place. Like up in the stars. A traditional safe place in our um, practice is to put our head in the lap of the Buddha. So, and the next step is, so inviting you to um, think about something that you're grateful for in your life. Maybe being here on retreat, having that opportunity to be with all of us here. It could be something that you're grateful for. You can also reflect on something that you're proud of. 
like something that you did in life that was important for you to achieve and you did. Maybe you received a gift or a blessing and just remembering that, what that felt like. And then maybe exploring um, this moment right now. Like, how's this moment? And of course, if ever the mind comes up, which it likes to do, with the things that we didn't get or we didn't achieve, just notice that, put it aside, and come back to focusing on the goodness in your life. So using your skill, your meditation skill of recognizing thoughts and disengaging and coming back to something you're grateful for, you're happy about. And just taking a moment to allow this feeling of contentment and gratitude to deepen. And now the last step or third step is bringing to mind people or beings you love, you respect, and you feel loved by or respected by. It can be one person or one being, like your dogs and cats should totally be in here too. And letting yourself be appreciated and loved. So even if not perfectly, again, just focus on what is there, the friendship, the support. Maybe just thinking about the people who are holding down the fort for you at home while you're here doing this.
And then just for another minute or so, allowing these three different aspects to roll into each other, go back to what spoke to you most, the sense of calm and peace and safety, focus on contentment and gratitude, or being cared for and care for people, to love and being loved. And as we're doing in the Qigong here with Tija, allowing this to smooth down the body. Or if that image works for you, imagining inhaling this deeply, like offering this to yourself, so that it can reach every cell of your body, as if it could attach to the oxygen molecules and ride piggyback into your being. So thank you for doing this with me. Um, What was that like? Not really looking for raised hands to answers, but did you feel you could connect with that or was that very strange, weird? Felt connected with one of them or several with them, of them, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what we just did was we tinkered a little bit with your neurotransmitters. And um, that is one way how we can work with our body and with our mind. And the invitation for you is to see if like any of these steps are helpful. Right, so basically what we're doing here, so if we're, you might have heard about like the tree on brain, so that our brain has like different layers, how it evolved over the time of evolution. So it started with like the most basic one, like the reptiles have that, right? And then the next one, like that is um, like the limbic system. So like mammals have that, birds have that. And then like the most advanced part of the brain is um, like the whole prefrontal cortex. And uh, primates have that to some extent and we have that. And these different um, parts of the brain, they are basically occupied with a different... um, job so to speak 
And the one that is the most primitive or the oldest is um, what's called like the avoid system. So that's like where the fight, flight, or freeze system sits, right? So that is when we are practicing calming and peace, safety, right? So that is the area of the brain that feels unsafe. And we can use practices to help calm that part down. Because you might have noticed that when you don't feel safe, it's hard to focus, right? And so when we want to hold this balance, so we're saying like vipassana meditation is seeing how things really are, right? When we start outdoing this, it can be quite desolate, when we notice what is out there and we notice like how unsafe we might feel, how scared we feel, how overwhelmed we feel, how sad we feel, right? So all these things, and it might feel really too much, right? So then one question is, so how can I stabilize the body-mind a little bit more before I do this? So it's, again, so we're, we're balancing, right? So we're calling this the middle path. So we don't want to overdo it because this is not the goal to feel all calm and peaceful and relaxed. I mean, it's wonderful if you do. I like somebody said that yesterday, like if you do that, yay. <laughs> but again, this is not and why we do this. We want to be here for whatever shows up. And at the same time, there are just like um, states of mind where it is easier to be with whatever is here, right? So what we do is we learn to resource ourselves before we go in there, if that makes sense. So, um, the, so the first, as I said, it's the most primitive, is so the avoid system. The second one is like the, the mammal system, it's the approach. So approach that is achievement, right? So that is... Um, wanting something, it's um, trying to figure something out. So it's again, this is not a negative thing. It's just again, how are we using that? So, and then the third one is um, what is more with um, humans and primates is what's called the attached system. So attached is like the caring, the love system. And so with these three steps, which is like, this is um, like a um, system or the meditation, I uh, adapted that from Rick Henson, so just in case you wondered where I got that from. And I find that very helpful because I think it's very practical. And um, so I like to do these meditations when I feel really unsettled. So it often helps me to calm down, and once I've done this, then I can look at whatever is here I need to pay attention to in a different way. So it's a little bit like um, I, I go in there with a friend. I don't go in there alone. Um, and so we learn to become this friend to ourselves more and more. And this is often so hard. I mean, often it feels so easy to be kind and friendly to like our friends or like even people that we don't know. But to extend the same kind of love and care to ourselves is really hard. It often feels like we don't deserve that or it makes us weak um, or it will make us complacent. 
So it's an interesting field to explore when in the end, like we're all yearning for this, right? We all want to feel loved, we want to feel seen, we want to feel appreciated. And so part of our practice here with like, how can we use our body to support this? How can we make our body a more safe place? So it's really a lot about um, how can we make peace with the body? Uh, when the body, as I said, might be a scary place because the body holds all these emotions that are so hard to feel. And it also often holds pain, right? So can I just have a show of hands? So how many of you um, have physical pain on a regular or semi-regular basis? Yeah, quite a lot, quite a lot, yeah. So what that means is that we have to come to terms with having this body, whether we like it or not, because that's the only body that we have. And so fighting it just makes it harder. So being at war with our own body, what it often does, it really it is something, of course, that is felt by the nervous system and that it adds on top of the uh, physical symptoms and the mental uh, symptoms that are already there. Um, so just I'll tell you just a briefly about my background. So um, I was always fascinated with um, skeletons. <laughs> um, as a little girl, we lived in a rural area, I started uh, collecting skulls, animal skulls. And I had quite an impressive collection and I'm up to this day, I'm just in awe by the beauty and just the way like they are constructed, it's just amazing, they're just jaw bones, it's just like, well, I can, won't go more into this, I mean, like, might be um, too much information for most of you here, but it's just, I, I love that, I love that. And um, so I became a physician, and as a physician, of course, you learn everything about the body, like inside out, and to, you take it apart, and you really see the body as an object, which is an interesting thing, because the first thing that you learn is you see the body as an object, right? So you do dissections on deceased people, and um, then in a way, it's then kind of, you have to make that step back, that when you then work with patients, to realize that it's not just a body anymore. There is something in there that needs a little bit more like recognition and acknowledgement and all of this, which is sometimes feels like that gets lost um, as we're moving through medical school, which can be quite a grueling process. Um, for me, I, I thought I wanted to... Um, it's interesting, so I, I came across Buddhism as a, as a teenager, so when I uh, finished high school. And for a very brief period, I even considered um, um, becoming a nun, uh, because I was so fascinated with what uh, Buddhist practice does to people. 
And I thought like, okay, so if I ordain, then that might be a fast track. And then I was actually, I, I spent um, two summers in, in Amaravati, which is like Ajahn Chah's monastery outside of London. I'm from Germany. Originally, you probably figured that out by my accent. <laughs> and um, so I was 18, 19, and um, I was very, very um, in love with the practice. In the end, I didn't do that um, for one reason, because I was very ambitious. I also didn't want to be celibate, and I didn't want to let go of my hair, to be very honest. So, right at that age, we have different vanities. Um, and so I went into medical school, and um, I think the practice really helped me actually get through that, and then with my patients in a different way and um, so when I moved to the US so I was trained in Berlin at the university and um, oh, what I wanted to say first is so first I thought I wanted to um, practice psychosomatic medicine which doesn't really exist here in the US but it is like how basically how um, psychic stress makes the body sick Right, which is like everywhere, but we here it doesn't really have a name. But then I decided I did an apprenticeship or like an internship for six weeks in Central Africa in Malawi, and I worked at a women's and children's hospital there, and I fell in love with um, working with women, and um, fell in love with um, female bodies and helping women with giving birth and um, like everything that a woman's body needs help with. And so I became a gynecologist. And then um, I became an, um, I went into oncology because that was just something. So there was always something that, like the suffering of the body was always something that was very fascinating to me. And so from there, I thought I would do that for the rest of my life until I moved to um, Los Angeles 14 years ago. And the idea was to just go there for one year. I would have never left Berlin had I known I wouldn't go back. And write one of these stories. And um, interesting thing was that I met um, Trudy there. <laughs> And what I also noticed is so like, just like how I fell in love with working with women in Africa, I fell in love with working with a female teacher. And before that, the teachers that I had, they were all wonderful, but they were all male. And they were all, they didn't have kids. They um, were just practicing mindfulness, which is totally fine, but that wasn't my path. And I had a baby at that time um, and to um, practice with Trudy, who also was a mom and a professional, um, was just wonderful and really made me change directions. And she suggested that I um, that I practice or learn how to teach MBSR. And I was so not interested in MBSR because I was a Buddhist practitioner and MBSR is mindfulness-based stress reduction. So that's the class that started the whole secular mindfulness movement. That's like John Kabat-Zinn's work. And I thought like, right, secular mindfulness. Oh, forget about it. And then Trudy said like, 
just go do training. It might be nice for your patients back in Germany. And I did that. And I fell in love with MBSR. And then Trudy and I taught a lot of MBSR classes together. And we fell in love with like what eight weeks can do to a person who is practicing 45 minutes a day, which is quite a commitment, right? And um, so what I'm telling this about MBSR is because the first practice in MBSR is what's called a body scan. And we're not just somebody mentioned the sweeping, the Goenka sweeping body scan earlier today. And so it's not just like a quick sweeping through the body, but like, anybody, has, anybody here has done MBSR? Okay, yeah, number of you. Okay, so you're very familiar with that. So you start with the left foot, right? And you go like, well, do I have toes? Oh, I'm not sure, right? And then so it takes like 45 minutes to go through every single part of the body, no part left out. And we do that for weeks. And then at some point I started training MBSR teachers. And MBSR teachers, they do that for months. They do 45 minutes of just feeling their body every single day. And what I noticed is that something quite wonderful happens when we do that in a way that it doesn't happen if we're just focused on the breath. Because something that I noticed was that we can actually bypass the body quite nicely, thank you very much, when we just focus on the breath, right? So sometimes, and I'm not, I love my mindfulness of breathing, so don't get me wrong, but sometimes it can be an avoidance. It can be, where, because we're often actually not feeling the body, right? Just a little bit of the breath, and we never get into the thick of what is here in this body, what needs to be felt what needs to be learned, what is there to discover. Because very often what happened is, right, so as I said, the body might be the enemy, or like we have never valued the body, right? So like I grew up in a family where it's just like, oh, it's all about, about the intellect, the intellect, who cares about the body? Like nobody cares about that, right? So you have one, you dress it, you feed it, that's fine, but that's really it. And, right, and so in a way, it's just like, yeah, oh well, the body. And so the information that we can gain from the body, we often dismiss. And so here we are doing the body scan, and we go like, I can't feel most of my body, which is a very typical response that people say. Like, I can't feel like I'm, I have lower legs, I'm pretty sure. I mean, last time I checked, they were there, but if I close my eyes and feel into them, like, not so sure, right? And yet, the thing is, when we do that, when we pay attention to the body in a way that we don't want anything, I mean, that is the other thing, right? So we have a body, we feed it, we dress it, and then we want it to perform, right? So ideally, it should look good, it should be fit, right? It should, like, bring us to places and then maybe give us some pleasure with sex. And then, But it's, it's like we always want something from the body. We never really pay attention just because. We never hang out with the body just the way we would with a friend, like a way it's like, oh, I like being in my body. We don't do that. And we're losing a lot of information, right? Because like if you're looking at the research, if you're looking like all oh, like they call it the, they talk about the second brain in your gut, right? And uh, let's not even start with all the bacteria that are in there that we now know they do something with your mood, which I think is kind of creepy, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> And they do fecal transplants 
in order to change your mood, right? Anyway, so let's not go into that. So just feeding your fantasies um, for the next couple of days here. <laughs> I never think you're alone. You're never alone. Um, so what we do is we start to reconnect with the body. And what we do is, because we also then focus on, usually on the areas that we don't like and the areas that in pain. And we overfocus on them, right? And because pain is the body's way to tell the brain to pay attention. So if there is a part of the body that is in pain, what does the mind do? It focuses on that, right? Have you ever noticed that when you're in pain, it feels like the rest of your body stopped existing? Right? It feels it's just the pain. And that has a really helpful function if there's really something acutely going on. But if we're in chronic pain, right, it's like, thank you very much. I paid attention to that. We already had surgery on that shoulder. Like, can we calm it down now? Right? But it's still like the shoulder, the shoulder, the shoulder, the shoulder. And then it feels like we're just that painful shoulder, which is not true. So part of the body scan is also just saying that, yes, and I have feet and they don't hurt. Right? And I have lower legs. They don't hurt. I can't even feel them. But they definitely don't hurt, right? And so I go through the body and I reconnect with this, what the Buddha calls the fathom long body. Which is very interesting. I think Jack mentioned that yesterday. It's like, there's a, the sutta, and the sutta talks about there, like there is like a, a spirit who can do, he can travel as fast as light, and he comes to the Buddha and says like, can I outrun pain and suffering? If I, because I'm so fast, right? Can I basically, can I gain enlightenment if I just run to the end of the universe? And the Buddha said, no, <laughs> you can't, I'm sorry. And he says, everything that you need to know is here in this fathom long body. And fathom is like an old measure that's like six feet. So like that's kind of the, I don't know why they thought like six feet is like the average person, but that's what we have. So it's this fathom long body. You have everything that you need. And I think that's a very strong statement and we better pay attention to this. And we learn what is there to learn. So what we learn is that the body really is completely in pain. And when we can say, yes, my shoulder is hurting, I just stay with the shoulder, but the rest is not in pain, that can make a big difference, right? Because other before that, it felt like, I'm just shoulder pain, there's nothing else. And now it's just like, yeah, there's shoulder pain. My right shoulder is not in pain, my arms are not in pain, my back right now is not in pain. Like, so most of the body might not be in pain. Hallelujah. Right? That can really change the way we perceive this. The other thing that is really important to um, know or to pay attention to when we're reconnecting with the body is that the body has so much knowledge. Right? The body actually has been around before your brain even started to remember anything consciously. Um, there is a poem by Martha Elliot. It's called, Your History is Here Inside Your Body. She says, your history is here inside your body. 
Your body is your storehouse of learnings, feelings, thoughts, and experiences, only waiting to be invited to reveal your treasures to yourself. Help yourself. As you let the learning emerge and take shape, you can appreciate the wisdom of the body, each cell alive with spirit, emotion, and intelligence, ready to help you at any moment, always with you and for you. It might not always feel that way, right? It might often feel like I can't do this and this is overwhelming. But this is a lot what we're here to learn, to learn to show up to what this body has to teach us about ourselves, about life, about the reality of having a human body, and then beyond that, and then beyond that. And what is really interesting is that the body is actually made to come back into the resting state and to come back into equilibrium, right? Our normal state is a resting state. And I think many of us have forgotten that. Right? If we live such busy lives and we're just always caffeine, we're always on the go, or people are proud to say, like, I'm an adrenaline junkie. Like, ouch. Do you know that adrenaline is toxin for your body? Do you know that? Do you know all the stuff that that does on your body over time? Like the whole the breakdown? Your body, our bodies, is not made for being constantly in this, like, sometimes really wonderful, exciting, thrilling overdrive. No, we are actually made to be mostly in the parasympathetics, which is called the rest and digest state. And in that state, what is very important, healing happens. Healing needs a lot of energy, right? You all know that. So when, when you have a cold, right, or you get over a flu, you think like it's done, like your symptoms are gone, and you feel like shit for like three more weeks. And you go like, what? I thought it's over, right? And you, you, you can barely drag yourself out of bed. This is how much energy the immune system needs to put you back together. So if you have a lot of energy, wonderful, hallelujah, right? But really to become aware like how much energy we're just blasting out with stress and blasting out with trying and over-efforting and resisting the experience that we're having right in this moment. So, the invitation really is to practice resting here and practice underdoing, right? So I'm just repeating what Tija has been just saying in every single of his session is like, try less. Or notice what does trying, what does efforting feel like? And then can you just go back a little bit? And the interesting thing is here, we're not saying slack off. We're not saying just go lie in bed and come when you feel like it. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, we say like, you're here for every sitting. And what you do is you give yourself over to the schedule, 
right? With our little of like, oh, I'd rather have it this way, or this is not long enough, or I want a little bit more of this. These are all personal preferences. And we try to let it go. So we give ourselves over to the schedule, and then in the schedule to see how can I find more freedom in the discipline, in my sitting here, in my whatever is here, my being uncomfortable, my being anxious, my feeling like sadness or feeling like I can't hold it together. How can I be with this experience? And so coming back also to what Jack yesterday said, so first becoming aware of content and then noticing the process, noticing what is at work here, like, oh, I'm over-efforting, right? I'm white-knuckling it. So how can I stay in my posture without doing that? And that is actually quite a challenge. But the approach is completely different because it's more, it comes from a place of playfulness. It comes from a place of curiosity, of saying like, wow, I'm over-efforting. Wow, look at that. What does over-efforting feel like? Let me be just, I'm really curious to find out more about over-efforting. Oh, yeah, that feels very familiar, huh? Isn't that interesting, right? And then to see when I do this, then suddenly there can be life coming back into something that feels very stuck, right? Like energy can come in, and often like from energy, then there is suddenly like joy and connection. And when we feel more joy and connection, then actually concentration is easier. So that can be, that's a very valid pathway into a more concentrated mind state, right? To relax the body, to play with energy, play with curiosity, to find joy in something that might feel stuck. And then from there to focus the mind, which then will feel a lot less efforted. And there is um, a wonderful passage from the Tao Te Ching, and I love Stephen Mitchell's translation best. <laughs> and um, it says, in the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the practice of the Tao, or the path, every day something is dropped. Less and less do you need to force things until finally you arrive at non-action. And when nothing is done, nothing is left undone. So, Going in to what feels scary and what feels overwhelming, um, it can be helpful to remember that you're not broken and you never were. So it is helpful to remember like our innate goodness, to remember that it is in there even if we have forgotten it, and it's hard to access this. And I'm sure many of you have read that story because it's. I first read it in one of Jack's books about the, um, the Golden Buddha in Thailand. But it's such a wonderful reminder of really our Buddha nature and what we do is, um, so I just want to, 
tell that story to you again, which is actually a true story. So um, the biggest and most precious um, Buddha statue in the world is a solid gold of 5.5 tons. And it was created in the 13th or 14th century in Thailand, probably in the Sukhothai tradition, for those of you who have been to Thailand, where they have these amazing temple ruins. And um, so they don't exactly know, so first when it was made, and then when it um, was covered. But the thing that happened was that um, in the 1950s, um, they remembered like a very old, ugly, uh, stucco Buddha statue that was in one of the monasteries in Bangkok. And they thought like, oh, this is so old and ugly, but it has been around for so long, so we give it some credit just for long levity, and like people kind of like it, and it needs a better um, house. It was just under, I don't know, just like getting too old and out in the weather and didn't have enough protection. And what they did is so they lifted this like really, yeah, not very impressive statue to bring it to another temple in, in Bangkok. And when they did that, um, so interestingly enough, nobody knows exactly what happens, but the story goes that so they were lifting it with ropes because obviously this thing was very heavy. And so a rope um, ripped and the um, part of the Buddha fell down. And when it fell down, like part of the plaster broke off. And they realized that under all that plaster, all that stucco, was solid gold. And they had completely forgotten about that. And then they tried to reconstruct the story and they um, thought that what happened had was like in the village where it was originally, so there were wars going on like between like neighboring countries and they covered up that gold statue with stucco and plaster to make sure that it doesn't um, get um, in the hands of the enemy, right? And obviously that worked really well. And it was to a point where everybody thought that was the statue. That was what it actually was about, right? And so, and I love this story because um, we forget that we all have this golden core, right? And that we have, over the course of our lives, just put so many layers of stucco and plaster on top to hide our preciousness to hide who we truly are. And often it's, that was the only way we could survive, right? To make sure that we're not being stolen. And then maybe because it was so long that at some point we started believing that this is who we truly are, but we're not, we're not. And so being on this retreat, going on retreat, is really an invitation to start kind of knocking on that stucco <laughs> and waiting, coming back to the beginning of my talk, waiting for like the clouds of the hindrances to pass so that the sky, the sky of our mind can break open and can shine onto the gold, and we can remember who we truly are.
So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.